Like, like you said, you're, you're really kind of embracing the idea that that's not the normal public originalism, which is a white originalism. But I'm, I'm not sure if, um, if that is true or if we want that to be true, in that if you're a public meaning originalist, then the, originalis the, the views of these individuals is as much a part of the public as the views of anybody else. And even though they weren't maybe seen as second class at the time, or not as prominent in terms of um, how much they were listened to, uh, they are as much a member of the public in terms of how much their interpretations uh, should count uh, from from that from that point of view. Um, second, I I realize that you're you're doing as much intellectual history as, uh, or perhaps more so than originalism. But and so this is probably not something that you really want to delve into. But the most interesting part of this for me, from a kind of the the complex implications of the work that that what you're revealing does in terms of um, textual analysis involves the interactions of the uh, Reconstruction Amendments over time. So you describe uh, you know, the 13th and 14th Amendments as having a kind of somewhat, somewhat intentionally or, or at least believed at the time open textured quality. Um, and then they get resolved in terms of practice kind of narrowly uh, against the interests of the African American community. And then you have a new amendment that's trying to correct this. And I think there's two really interesting ways we can understand what that's doing textually. So one is a kind of re reluctant liquidation of the narrow meaning followed immediately by a creation of a new law that creates the broad meaning in a, in a more direct way. Um, so you could see it as, as creating the narrow meaning in the earlier amendment, or you could see this, it as the adoption of, the, of the, the later amendment as a rejection of the narrow view and saying, you guys are doing it wrong, this is what we meant, creating kind of parallel um, uh, open construction in both. And maybe you get exactly the same results either way, um, but in terms of what's metaphysically going on, I find that incredibly interesting, especially because it's not a phenomenon that we see in the, the Bill of Rights and the, the uh, original Constitution because of the, the, the time components. Thank you. Um, I, I find the, the claim, which I hear widely, and including some from my students, um, that there are these multiple meanings given different communities and that the fact that there were excluded communities, that those communities would have understood the meaning of the Constitution differently than other communities would have to be highly implausible. I mean, it's, it's possible, but it's quite unlikely. I don't, I've, never seen any re, I've never seen any evidence to suggest that women, for example, who were excluded from the process didn't understand the English language in the same way that men did, such that they understood perfectly well that gender got introduced into the Constitution for the first time in Section 2 of the 14th Amendment and were outraged by this. They were outraged by the public meaning of the text, which they understood as well as anyone. Same thing with African Americans. There's nothing in any of your narrative that suggests that any of these conventions were using the English language in any kind of idiosyncratic way that, that meant that they couldn't understand what whites were saying, for example. Um, and the problem here is that I think in your account, as well as most accounts that take this view, the, the meaning of meaning is ambiguous. And it can mean several things. Uh, and in particular, first of all, it can mean what public meaning originally, and by the way, don't let Mike scare you off of public <laughs> meaning. He's been sitting in the corner rumbling about, rumbling about this for years. You can still be, uh, be a public meaning person, right? right. Um, but uh, the um, meaning can mean communicative content of the text. That's one word. Meaning could also mean the import. What did it mean to you? 
What does this text mean to you? It's your in, what's the import for you? And, this, and, you're, and you're basically using the second of these two meanings. You say here on page 51, so the right to carry arms meant for them the same thing as their demand for the strong arm of law and order, basic safety in a world of lawless violence. Well, that's true. The import of the individual right to bear arms was for them this idea of safety in a, in a world of lawless violence, sure. Um, um, but that doesn't, anything, doesn't say anything about the public meaning. You accuse scholars who have used this evidence, as, uh, 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 right up above, you accuse these scholars for taking this portion of the memorial out of context. And I see no evidence of this on the following page in which you discuss their use of this uh, re reference to the right to keep and bear arms. Uh, because what, why, why was Steve Halbrook and Akhil Amar using this quote? They were using it at, to rebut the claim that this was a collective right of states and or a right of individuals to be exercised solely within an organized militia. In fact, they were claiming it was an individual right that could be exercised outside the context of an organized militia. Um, and that's exactly what these quotes illustrate. The, these conventions are not asserting that they're being denied to serve in the militia. They're not asserting that the state um, uh, ought to have a right to maintain a militia. And, I, and, and with respect to whether they would have been happy with a uh, non-discriminatory ban on all weapons, I doubt very much that the freedmen would have been very content to see only the local sheriff and the sheriff's deputies have weapons and not them. I think this is a very unlikely possibility. And I don't think they would have been any happier to see the militia only having, having weapons since most of the militias in those days were white. Um, so again, this is highly implausible. Um, so for this reason, I think the, uh, this is wonderful at confirmatory evidence. Um, that the public meaning of the text is something that can, is open to all, including these communities that were excluded from the drafting and ratifying of the text, to be sure. Um, and it and, and these, these quotes were not being taken out of context. They were used perfectly appropriately both by the scholars and by the court who relied upon them. Thank you. Uh, I, too, want to thank you for uh, this work, um, for reasons that may be somewhat obvious and reasons that may be less obvious. Um, I do, uh, I think at some point in the paper you sort of refer to uh, the Civil Rights Amendments as sort of the second founding for the nation's African-American um, individuals. And I, I challenge that. I wonder if it's really their first founding in the sense that they were very much the focus of uh, the founding, but also uh, to the extent, I, I would suspect that there were more uh, 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 things to find during this time than there may have been in the 1700s in terms of the conversation amongst African Americans. And so, and, and, and to the extent that, that I think of it more as a first founding, I think it sort of really explains the significance of what's going on at the time for that particular population. Um, I also would, would challenge the, the, the exclusion of views from uh, women at the time, African-American women, primarily because of the huge role that they played um, in terms of the abolitionist movement as a whole. Um, and, 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 and to the extent that we have some very, fairly prominent women who were very outspoken about their citizenship uh, not just from a, a feminist or, or a female perspective, but just sort of as a, a, a human perspective. 
and I think in some ways um, their voice is not really as a matter of feminism, but just as a matter of black people. Um, and, and, and to the extent that uh, they that what they say may help sort of broaden our view of the population at the time, that could be significant. Um, and of course, all of these comments are in the context of, I have no idea what the rest of this book is, so, um, <laughs> so maybe there's something there. And then finally, I'll say, um, you know, I, I, I wonder if some of the tone creates somewhat of a homogenous voice. And I wonder if that is quite accurate in the sense that, you know, there were many rainbows of shades of, of African-Americans who had very different statuses um, in their particular states um, and, and, and who had some socioeconomic mobility um, in certain places through a recognition that you could have these very prominent black communities, many of whom um, included people of mixed race. Um, and so their sense of originalism or, or citizenship or, or views over these amendments at that time could be, uh, could add a, a different flavor or a different color um, to the conversation amongst sort of African-Americans in the North, those in South Carolina, but I think a lot about those Creole communities in Louisiana and in the, in the because of some of the privilege that they had that other African-Americans didn't enjoy prior to the Civil War, I wonder if that could add just another sort of um, element to this that could be incredibly informative. But otherwise, and, and, and I'll just say, I think footnote 45, you could just cite to Mr. Upton's paper for, from a few years ago um, on the issue of sort of sexuality and racial sexuality. But otherwise, I, I, I very much enjoyed the paper. Okay. Um Thank you. Um, so, Christina, the so I, I think this is one of the questions that I'm I'm interested in. What in, in what ways can our current concept of public meaning, right, right? How does this affect the current concept? Do we maintain a unitary um, understanding of public meaning that is, in fact, not authentic to the history, but maybe sort of authentic for us? But I mean, interestingly, the move. I think that you're pushing towards making is a presentist move, what historians would see as a presentist move, um, which is something that is, a, I think, problematic for a lot of originalists, right? Whether, to, whether you are being presentist or not as an originalist, right? Whether you are sort of, sort of taking, well, contemporary or understanding, looking back on that, is sort of taking a, a present understanding of the way groups in, uh, interact and meaning works as opposed to a past. I, that, that's why I particularly like the, the public, counter-public theory approach to the historical overlaps, um, because I see it more as there are overlapping um, understandings and meanings and, and um, also some disjunctions. And so it, it's hard to get a, a coherent public meaning, but I think you can do it conceptually either way, probably. Um, so I, 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 I'm not sure where ultimately I would come down on that, but I think the public meaning concept is, is potentially very rich that way. Um, and on, on the question of sort of the, 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 what might be considered sort of the, I, I like your reluctant liquidation and reiterative um, ideas. And so, I mean, I, I think for African-Americans looking at the 13th Amendment, particularly African-Americans in the North who had basically gone through this already, 
they knew that, well, freedom should mean, and to us does mean these things. And we also know, because we supposedly had freedom in Pennsylvania in 1780, um, we know that that doesn't work, right? We've seen the liquidation and it's gone against us. And so we want to try to fight against that even in the present. So it's, I, I think they know that the 13th Amendment is not going to be enough because they know how whites have behaved. Um, and, and they don't have political power at this point. So um, I think that's, that's why they are wanting to push for, well, we need a, yet another amendment is we're gonna need this sort of stuff. Now what that says about their sort of understanding of, of prior amendments is I think a very complicated thing. Um, so does the, to them the 13th Amendment mean all that they say it really means or is it more just a principle that doesn't yet mean that because it's not actually implemented in constitutional text? And I think that's a, um, a, a, a difficult thing. But I, I mean, I, my, my sense is where I'm gonna come out on this is that each one is a, that there's this general meaning and each time is an effort to try to realize that meaning but doesn't um, constrain the meaning from the other um, amendments, but I, 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 that's something I'm uh, obviously still working on. Um, Randy, I think the, um, I, so there's a couple points where I think we're just going to disagree on, on, on this. Um, one is um, actually on the reading of like the South Carolina Convention. So I, I find it extremely hard to read the way the South Carolina Convention talks about gun rights and not see it as partially a collective right. Um, and, I, and, and to see the collective individual um, dichotomy as, as as problematic for that our our we are imposing that dichotomy on them in a way that I don't see that when I read that full text. Whereas if you just take what you know what Amar or Holbrook or the, or the court did and just extract out, I think you miss that. So I, I mean, we might actually have to sit down and say, well, here's why I think that text works and why it doesn't, um, and we may end up just disagreeing about that. But I, I do read that differently. So that's. Um, part of what I think is is going on there on the multiple meanings. I think it depends what you're Ultimately what level of generality you're talking about. So everyone knew what male meant in in section two um, They didn't agree on what citizenship meant right citizenship meant very different things citizenship um, I So citizenship for a white community before the Civil War did not include African Americans, and it did not include women, at least not in the same way, right? So it was, there was an understanding of citizenship, and you even see this in Curtis's descent in Dred Scott, there's multiple classes of citizenship. There's a first class and a second class citizenship, and he says that, that's why blacks are citizens, because they had second class citizenship. Um, and, uh, and so I think that there's the, the understanding that you get when African Americans in public speeches are constantly saying, addressing fellow citizens, and so you see that with David Walker, you see it with Frederick Douglass, you see it in almost every speech they're giving, they, they open it up with fellow citizens. That is a citizenship claim, it is a claim to meaning that is not generally accepted and what's radical about it, and they know it's radical, it's why they make that as a rhetorical point, is they're claiming citizenship as something different. Now, the meaning, the, the substance of citizenship, um, ultimately they, they are overlapping. So this is why the, the meanings are overlapping, but ultimately they have, um, they, are, they are excluded from some of the, the constitutional text because they are sort of take different meaning approaches to it. So, I, and I, I fully admit that maybe I'm confusing different understanding and semantic uh, of the meaning of meaning. Um, and I don't know how much of that, I mean, the, the understanding of 
I, I think a lot of you all who write in this is much more sophisticated than I currently work with because I do most of the historical stuff. I, um, and, and I think I can try to, to track that and be careful of that a little more in, in the piece. But um, I, I think there's some core thing there about understanding some of those constitutional issues that they're excluded from the text in part because they understand it differently. Um, but I also do agree that there are some important overlaps, right? So what, what is it? How is it that they understand privileges uh, or, or immunities um, or rights and privileges concepts? And so some of that definitely overlaps with other meanings. But then there's other people who understand it quite differently, what national privilege right, is, as Kurt Lash has shown. So um, da, da, da. On, and to answer your point, I think African Americans would have been fine if a black sheriff had a gun. I think that, that the point here is that it's a problem if guns are taken away and whites are the ones in power. And the point of the South Carolina Convention is that we have over 50% of the people. If we get the vote, we get to control. In fact, that's what happens in Reconstruction, is that it is the local power that African Americans get uh, much more so than the rest of the power. And that is critically important to them. And so it is a quite different thing if you have a biracial local and state government that is implementing protection by the government than if you have a white government. So having a gun is really important if we don't have political power in certain ways. And it's important in different ways if we have biracial government. Um, so Shakira, the, um, I mean, the second founding, first founding question I think is, is really good. One of the things that I see, especially in the, the abolition period, but also in this period is that in trying to create an African-American identity, a distinctly American African-American identity, there is an effort by African-Americans to claim the revolution and claim American history, right? That's part of claiming that we are American. Now they do it in a very different way. Um, for instance, their view of, of the importance of the Haitian Revolution is quite different from white views of the Haitian Revolution. I mean, radically different. Um, and that that's a really important part. So I think that what they do is they see the, the second founding as the completion of the revolution. Right? The revolution is incomplete because it didn't get rid of slavery. Haiti got rid of slavery and got rid of colonial governance. America got rid of colonial governance, but not slavery. So it's partial. And it's that understanding that they bring into the Reconstruction period. I think, the, of it as a second founding, but also a sort of completion of the first founding. Um, and, and so that, I think, is a, a, a sort of very interesting approach to the American history that they're using at the time. Um, and yeah, I, I, I am going to be trying to pull in, in, in these particular conventions, there's no um, sort of evidence of African-American women speaking at the time or of white women talking about race issues. Um, Though there, is, there are other documents that do that. So, um, you know, there, there's, there's a couple really important ones. Um, and then especially as you get a little later in Reconstruction, you see some of that. So I'm, I'm wanting to work with that and talk some about that. But I also do think that there's, um, it, is, it is significantly incomplete on gender lines. But you, you get some friends, uh, Ellen Watkins, Harper Watkins. Um, has a great um, speech on intersectionality that she gives right around that time that, that is, I, I think, a really nice one that I'll use. Um, why don't I stop there for now? Uh, next 
Troika, uh, David Upham, uh, Michael McConnell, and Don Drips. Hey, thanks very much for this paper. And um, there's a lot of materials here that I'm just um, that I haven't seen before, and I'm really happy to to, to devour them. Um, I did want to take issue with a couple of things first in um, support of Randy Barnett's statement about the right to bear arms. Um, I think that the South Carolina Constitution of 1868 um, supports his, his conclusion because it has biracial, it has an absolute prohibition on, on race discrimination, and it has a right of the people to bear arms. Um, and and, and uh, a provision also saying we hate standing armies, pretty much traditional Anglo-American stuff. Um, the, and you have the, the disavowal of um, trying, to, you, trying to deal with the enormously complex um, task of trying to trace genealogies of ideas and the relationship between black originalism and um, or, or African-Americans' thoughts at the time and other citizens' thoughts. Um, I, I, I just think the title of the, the, the book and also some of the claims you make throughout, throughout some of the text um, suggest a claim of distinctiveness. Um, and, and some, I, I think there actually is something there. Um, I think there is something in the way African-Americans approach the issue, uh, interracial marriage issue. Also just, you know, there's other stuff, but um, there's some things that, that you say that I don't you know, think are true. Like you say that the, uh, you talk about the, um, every citizen in the United States, citizen of the, of the particular state in which he's domiciled, as a kind of forerunner to, you know, the uh, section one. But that's Gassies versus Ballin, it's 1832, the Supreme Court said, said just, you know, there was, wasn't anything new about that. And at times you, 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 you suggest um, not just a distinctive voice, but an adversarial voice, even vis-a-vis -vis, um, uh, white abolitionists. So you say on the same page that they're, um, when they, 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 they force the audience of white law, lawmakers to con confront the fact that an earlier generation of white lawmakers who founded the country had given them suffrage. Well, you just mentioned uh, Curtis's dissent and Fred Scott. That's Curtis's dissent, talking about how originally uh, blacks could vote. And, I mean, that was something that was just all over the place in, um, among abolitionists and also among just general um, advocates of black citizenship, regardless of whether they're white or black advocates. Um, I guess the last... Um, last, last, last criticism is... Um, is the suggestion of a distinct, if not adversarial, voice consistent with their voices? Uh, because the way they speak is our fellow citizens, as you mentioned. Um, they, they seem to be speaking um, integrationism rather than um, uh, we have our own voice, it's not yours, um, our interpretation is different. Um, that's, that doesn't seem to be the way um, they speak. In fact. As you mentioned, um, a lot. Of you, you, although the title of the book is called "A Second Founding," their own rhetoric seems to suggest that they're just completing the founding. It was already there, either in the text or in the Declaration, and this is more of a new birth of the old freedom, or somehow a perfection of the regime rather than a, uh, a, a reconstitution of it. Uh, so this is uh, fascinating and almost entirely new to me. Uh, I have questions rather than uh, rather than comments. I have four questions. I don't know if you'll be able to answer them, or but just so that you know, sort of some of the things that I'm interested in pulling from your work. Uh, I'm you know, very familiar with the arguments that are going on on issues of civil rights and especially segregation in Washington in the early 1870s. 
uh, but completely unaware of you know what's going on in these uh, in, in, in these meetings. And I'm curious about how these things uh, fit together. So one question I have is uh, whether you said that there were not that the people who are participating in these conventions were not participating in the formation of law, and I wonder whether that is, remains true in the 1870s. There are quite a few quite active and eloquent and uh, dynamic uh, black members of Congress. Uh, did any of them participate in the conference, in these conventions? Did they have letters? I mean, what is there any cross-fertilization between the uh, public movement in the, in the African-American community and these representatives? That's the first question. Um, Second question, or the next three are all about specific constitutional issues where I'm wondering if the African-American position as you see it differs or not. I just have no idea, uh, but I'm very curious. So one has to do with the respective roles of Congress and the courts in enforcing the 14th Amendment. Uh, did the uh, African-Americans have more faith in Congress? Do they have more faith in the courts? Well, how, did they, how did they view that? I think extremely important structural uh, uh, question. Another uh, question that occurs to me is, were they as surprised as everybody else when Slaughterhouse came down? Um, and ple pleasantly or unpleasantly? I mean, I could really kind of think, they're, they're sitting there thinking, uh, you know, why are these white butchers in New Orleans free riding on our amendment? Or on the other hand, they might have recognized the way in which Slaughterhouse gutted the amendment and realized that it would have bad repercussions for them. I'm just very curious how they react to Slaughterhouse uh, coming down. And my uh, final question is about uh, interracial marriage uh, because it's so conspicuous in the debates in the 1870s that the sort of legal theoretical question about uh, uh, inter interracial marriage is the same, or at least extremely close to the question about segregation, but the way in which it is talked about is entirely different. And one, way, one explanation for that that always occurs to me is that the, black, uh, the Republicans' black constituents actually may either don't care or may even be as uncomfortable about the idea of interracial marriage as they are because of the, of the uh, uh, sexual aspects of slavery itself. It may be that interracial sexual relations is sort of the last thing on their agenda, which might explain why uh, it's discussed in this such a weird way uh, in, in the 1870s. And also, it, uh, it occurs to me that maybe the strategy of having Pace versus Alabama come before Plessy versus Ferguson was a very shrewd choice on the you know, in the uh, anti-civil rights uh, uh, side, maybe for some of those reasons. So those are my questions. Tom. So I was um, very interested by this as history. I had no idea was out there, and so it's a service to bring that to, in, into the light. Um, I was struck by reading uh, some of the speeches um, about the, the gender question that Ryan got to and Shakira got to, and it just struck me reading those speeches is, is it's not Enlightenment liberalism in which each person counts with inherent dignity. Um, uh, it's, it's a kind of um, a, a, a status claim that all, all males have the right to be an alpha male. 
Um, and I think, right? I think I, I get with the, with the weapons and with with withholding property and with voting and being sort of a Potter familius in the in the Roman sense. Um, and I hypothesize that the rhetoric in the suffragette movement is, in fact, that of universal human dignity. Um, and at what point does that become the dominant way of thinking about um, uh, uh, equality and liberty in the United States? It clearly is not antebellum. Um, and it probably is not until, well, even it, maybe one day we'll get there, I guess. But, but I'd like your thoughts on that. Okay. okay. Okay, so um, David, yeah, I, I think I, I am going to need to work with the um, 1868 South Carolina um, Constitution and the other constitution. That me that, from what I've done so far, which is still preliminary, um, Louisiana Constitution doesn't have the right. South Carolina does, and has a pretty strong version of it. Um, and and it, so it's a little mixed on what the 1868 constitutions are doing. I think those are are really important state constitutions for trying to figure out how, how they thought about rights and that there's going to be a variety of it um, ultimately. And, um, you know, I mean, part of this may also be that the, that constitution, that the biracial dynamic is going to come out differently on that than maybe the um, black convention in Charleston was viewing it, right? So it's not implementing those views. They sort of see this as, right, one of the interesting things about late Reconstruction or sort of mid-Reconstruction <coughs> is the intersection of the various. So you have a sort of, if you take a sphere-counter-sphere approach, you actually have a potential intersection, though then you've got the counter-sphere of white Democrats who are outside of this, right? Um, but but you have that. And so I'm, I, um, that's going to be, I think, an, an important thing to look at. And I, ultimately, I don't know where I come down on, um, I mean, I. I I think that it, this period is really good evidence that there is an individual right, but the question is sort of what that means. Um, sort of bigger question, and I'm not sure where that's going to come out because I I'll also want to try to see what what laws were then implemented by the biracial legislature, and, and um, that's of course one of the issues that comes up in the Heller McDonald line. Um, and so on the claims of distinctiveness, yeah. So I think this is this, it's going to be important for me to try to get that clear. In, in this, because I think there are definite distinctions in the way that African Americans are talking about some of these issues, and there are also some very important overlaps. Like the, and this is particularly true in the in the abolition community, right, where they are, are pulling and they get Curtis's dissent, and then they they um, circulate that widely, and that becomes a sort of source text for a lot of the discussions that are going on, and that's. That's certainly true for in, in, in here, but I think there is still a distinctiveness in the way they are understanding how those things are implemented, and that's probably best seen in the way um, it, the northern states are approaching some of this. So it's, uh, for African Americans in the north, what they think they can get out of this is quite different from what even white abolitionists think the northern states should be doing. Um, so the extent that they are, it is, it is a lot of African American pushing to get to the point of actual public accommodations desegregation in the North from the period about this time period through ultimately the 1890s. Um, and, and so I think there is a distinctiveness, and, and again, sort of distinctiveness in implementation, I don't know how much of it is a distinctiveness in um, sort of what, where they see some of these sources coming from, but. But there's a strategic effort to try to use 
some generally understood and accepted frameworks to try to push those ideas. Um, and whether they saw this as adversarial or integrationist, I think they saw it as both. So one of the core texts for me on this is Frederick Douglass's um, 4th of July oration, which is actually on the 5th of July. And that is, he is doing, it is a masterwork. It's absolutely incredible how he is able to be both integrationist and adversarial where he is saying, you know, I'm part of you, I'm not part of you. That, and ultimately, one of the themes of that speech is to say, that that you sell did yesterday, that's your country, not my country. But he does it, he leads up to that in a very um, rhetorically interesting way, is that he's sort of pulling his audience in and then slapping them, pulling them and slapping them, right? And, and it is that use that you see, I think, in a number of texts of both um, embracing an integrationist um, language and also saying, and we also get this. And so I, I think Henry Highland Garnett's speech is also doing this because he's talking to a lot of white people in Congress, the first black man to enter the halls of Congress and speak and give an address. It's, so, and, and so he is integrationist in this. But one of the things that I say there is he's, he's doing it in a way that's trying to weave together some of these more aggressive claims that he's made in his past and which he is known to be um, on the aggressive side, right, as a black nationalist, one of the first black nationalists. Um, and he's trying to do both. Um, and, and so that's one of the things I find interesting about it. Um, and then, and Michael, I, I think um, the, uh, there's, there's a lot of feeding into um, the, what is going on by the 1870s of what the um, different people who are, who are engaged in sort of public discourse in the mid-1860s. So there are actually some people. So um, Kane, for instance, who, take, who takes part in the South Carolina Convention, goes down to South Carolina and is part of that convention, then gets elected. Um, you see some of the members, particularly the South Carolina Convention, who are then um, become members of Congress. Um, and also you see D.C. is particularly interesting because an awful lot of, especially northern African Americans, go to D.C. to lobby Congress and also to implement the Freedmen's Bureau and get engaged in, in local government. So there's, um, there is a lot of development and overlap there, but I haven't yet pieced together what the connections exactly are there. So that's something that I, I definitely want to look at more. Um, and, and how, like for instance, how, how uh, African Americans react to Slaughterhouse, I don't specifically know, though I know that in Congress, one of the African American representatives it, it sort of basically says, you know, this, this Slaughterhouse is a problem for us as members of Congress trying to do stuff for this. They sort of recognize that, which a number of other Republicans did, and we've got to figure out how, how to try to, so the move from privileges or immunities over to equal protection happens in part because of that, I think. Um, and, and I know that's part of it, but I don't know, there is a very strong reaction to the civil rights cases in 1883, and I don't know of a similar type of reaction to the slaughterhouse cases. Um, but certainly, you know, for it in Louisiana, the African-American, right, it's a biracial legislature that passes the law um, that is, is then challenged. And so 
obviously there's a there's the, the sort of overlap with you have um, Republican biracial legislatures trying to advance some of these rights, and those are being challenged in Slaughterhouse, and so it it sort of is a is in between, right? So what we're trying to do legislatively is the thing that gets upheld in Slaughterhouse, right? But um, it's it's sort of a, a, a an odd use of the case by our opponents uh, using the amendment that we were fighting for, right? And I, so I'm not sure. I haven't seen any specific writing or speeches from uh, by African Americans on that. So I'm, uh, that's something I can continue to look at. Um, and on on interracial marriage, um, my sense is that um, there was a recognition that this was a they call it the bugbear argument, right? So this is the, the, the miscegenation is the argument that they recognize, look, um, we don't agree with this argument. Um, so they, you know, uh, they would have seen interracial marriage, the bar of interracial marriage, as an implementation of white supremacy. But they wouldn't have seen that as the most important issue to address, right? So they didn't want it to be the thing that stopped from getting desegregation in other ways, is is my sense of this. Um, so I'm 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 interested in in how how that actually plays out, especially in the 1870s to 1880s is where I think that's going to come up most. Um, it is it is briefly mentioned in, a, in some of the materials I've looked at so far earlier. Um, so. Yes, I'm going to go up to about 1875. You know, essentially, sort of the end of Reconstruction, though historians beat me over the head for periodization issues. Um, okay, and then um, just wanted to, to come back. Are we, are we doing this? It's close. Okay. Um, the, the, it's just, <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to think, Don, I, I may just go ahead and, and, and move on and come back to you on that. Yeah. More of a comment, question, kind of curious thing. So, so yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll come back to you on that in part because I, I'm having trouble reading my own handwriting also. Textualist <laughs> 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 note, I, um, I was actually next on the list. So uh, we have um, six or seven more people, including me. And if I have to, if I have to squelch myself, I apologize. Um, but, you know, a fortiori, uh, I have to squelch everybody else. We're at the witching hour. Um, the history of this, I think, is, uh, has been fascinating absolutely to all of us and is, um, I suspect, uh, new to almost everybody, if not to everybody in the room. So um, with uh, special gratitude, uh, thanks, uh, Jamie and Ryan.